When you start a church, leave a church, change churches, move and need to find a new church, you also might find that then you are having to answer a question. Why church? I mean, why do it? In our context, there's enough spiritual content, sermons, music, other podcasts, social media accounts, the list goes on. We are up to our eyeballs in Bible knowledge and spiritual reflection. And so then we find ourselves saying, why church? This all came to the surface for Curtis and I as we found ourselves bit by bit thinking of starting this church. We very much needed to answer why at all because there are already a lot of churches, a lot. And so why start one? I mean, do we really need another one? And for that matter, do believers need to be part of a church? Like, why? Still, now. For me, when I needed to re-answer why church, two reasons kept surfacing that felt sort of unique. Things that can't be solved with digital content or even just personal commitment to growth. One, there are ways we can follow Jesus together that we simply cannot do alone, especially related to justice. There's power in collective action that cannot be accessed through individual contributions. You know, Joe and Laura are site leaders for a pantry distribution, and Dan and Sharon are part of their regular volunteers. Neither of them could just run that distribution alone. In our less than two years as a church, we have given $7,500 to various justice organizations and then collected $1,700 more just for calling cards for migrant youth. And... All of those groups, they are doing work that we are simply not able to do. We're not qualified. We couldn't. And we see God moving in these very important areas. And so we want to join in. But also, I don't have that kind of giving power on my own. So church can help us do things together that we simply cannot do on our own to address things that are very important in the world. Second, there's something deeply special about love for one another. And doing all of this with others, being our actual selves without striving for approval. There's a real deep need we share to be known and loved. And church isn't the only group that can offer that, but it should be a group that always does. And I think we all know that isn't always the case. We're in a series called Following Their Lead, How Black Theologians Help Us All Read the Bible Better. This week, we're drawing from the work of Brian Blount, who's an African-American Christian ethicist, and specifically a chapter he wrote on the book of John. Blount invites us to consider that one answer to why church is this. It's the group whose radical love for each other is so strong that it's an act of communal resistance. And that resistance can be so powerful, it transforms a culture or community. So let's start with the big picture, and then we're going to zoom in on John chapter 13 eventually. Blount notes for us how John's message is a bit unique from the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are especially concerned with us seeing how the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. But John doesn't focus on the kingdom. John's message is Jesus. Just Jesus. The person of Jesus is with us, and therefore, everything is made clear. Jesus separates the whole world into things from above or things below, truth versus lies, light versus dark, life versus death. He's the divider. For example, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So as John tells this story, one thing's clear for him. Jesus changes everything. John's characters encounter and experience Jesus, and then they choose sides 
because Jesus has divided things. And so if you just scanned the Gospel of John, for example, you'd see this. These people that meet Jesus, the guests at the wedding of Cana who experience abundance, Nicodemus, who's invited to recenter his identity, John the Baptist and his followers, who point to Jesus's true nature as the one God sent, the Samaritan woman as the well, the beginning of God's expansion into the nations, a royal official with a dying son, a man who couldn't walk and found that Jesus is healer, a crowd on a hill at the end of a long day who found that they are fed in abundance, a woman brought to Jesus for adultery so that he can redefine grace, a man who couldn't see, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who find that Jesus conquers death. Why does this matter? Well, John's first audience are people who chose Jesus and it costs them. They have each other, but they lost family and community. And they're forging a life together, but under pressure from Rome on the one side and non-Christian Jews on the other who each criticize them. And at some level, at least sometimes, I imagine they must be asking, why? Like, why are we doing this again? Why are we here together? And what next? And so John is writing to them to say, essentially, you've chosen Jesus. Remember, he said, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The community who love one another as Jesus loved them will themselves shine light into dark, be truth in the face of lies, offer life instead of death. Often when we're invited to consider the love of Jesus, we hone in on the cross. It's where he sacrifices, where he loses all his status, where he's humiliated. And he experiences all of that willingly because going through it will be the very act that upends the power of death. But this line about being marked by love, Jesus says it before all of that. How has he loved us? Before the cross. In this experience, where he does all those same things, he sacrifices, loses status and honor, and does it willingly because going through this act will be the very thing the whole group can look to as a model of radical love. Here it is. John 13. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know what I am doing, but later you'll understand. Peter said, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except the feet but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
And then jumping down, we get to verse 34 again. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a fair amount of cultural distance between us and this moment. Without experiencing an honor and shame culture, we might connect most easily with the reality that feet were gross and this was a servant's job, but Jesus did it. Yes, true. And taking a servant's job wasn't an opt-in to be nice thing. It simply wasn't done because once you do that, something changes and you can't undo it. Something materially shifts when you trade rabbi for servant. And Jesus says, do like I've done. Love like I've loved. This is the power of radical community love. These acts can't be taken back, forgotten, or undone. And enough of them repeated over again can be utterly transformative. So we've come to the heart of what Blount and other black theologians testify to. Communal love can change the world. Quickly, I want us to notice three things that mark Jesus's choice to wash feet. Signposts that lead us forward. First, it was radical. This job of a servant. You would never do this if you're a rabbi who cares about your honor and your status. Second, it was tangible. This is an action they experience, not just teaching they receive. It's something they felt on their very bodies, something that they could then repeat in their own actions. It was tangible. And third, it was internal. Jesus didn't offer foot washing to everyone one day at synagogue. Hey, line up. I'll wash your feet for you. He offered it just to them. Blount again. Love is the ultimate countercultural force. It is their love for one another that makes them a visible and viable alternative to the prevailing thought of the surrounding hostile world. Love holds them together when the persecutions come. Love keeps them together and thus guarantees that more persecution will come. The world's goal is to extinguish them in the same way that darkness wants to overcome the light. By continuing to love one another, they exist. That is, they continue to resist. This love, then, is the primary social method of that resistance. This love then is the primary social method of resistance. John includes the foot washing for the Jesus trusting Jewish folks sitting on the outside now, pressured by empire and community of origin, both fall in line with where you come from. Don't rock the boat. One says, or fall in line with what dominant culture worships, namely power. Don't try to change anything, but the world needs changing. In so many ways, we know the world needs changing, and the method for the change is to love one another. This act of love, then, is the model for us. It's the model, Blount notes, because it advocates the creation of a visible community whose intramural love sets it apart and makes it a viable, recognizable alternative to the traditional ways of being and living in the world. Just as Jesus was sent into the world by God as a beacon, slicing through the darkness, lighting the only true path to God and salvation, so too are the disciples sent into the world with the same confrontational agenda. Blount offers this example for us to make it all concrete. It's the Montgomery bus boycott. The method of change was to love one another. African Americans are positioned to see this because they won't be loved by whiteness. They must love each other. Their very survival depends upon their collective care for one another. And so consider the Montgomery bus boycott that happened from December 5th, 1955 to December 20th, 1956, a full year and then some. An article from Stanford's King Institute notes, 
After the city began to penalize black taxi drivers for aiding the boycotters, the Montgomery Improvement Association, who coordinated the protest and was led by Dr. Martin Luther King, organized a carpool. Following the advice of T.J. Jemison, who had organized a carpool during the 1953 bus boycott in Baton Rouge, the MIA developed an intricate carpool system of about 300 cars. Cars driven by women like Johnny Rebecca Carr, who later said, those of us who had automobiles felt that if other people who did not have cars would sacrifice and walk, we could certainly sacrifice our time and use our automobiles to help transport these people. The Montgomery bus boycott was an act of transformative resistance, certainly, but it worked because of community care. Were it not for the carpool systems created for one another, the boycott likely would have failed. Had the boycott failed, the civil rights efforts of the 60s would likely not have been what they were. In the boycott, Blout reminds us, quote, African-Americans supported their own for the purpose of enduring and overcoming the oppression arrayed against them. To be sure, this effort was one of radical, tangible, internal love. Love for one another led to momentous sacrifices of walking to work and school, supplying cars and time to aid those who had long distances to travel, enduring outside hostility through shared moments of worship and prayer. Why church? First, because Jesus changes everything. And second, because radical, tangible, internal love for one another can fuel change in a world that needs changing. And so what exactly do we do? We love each other. Radically, tangibly, we take care of our own. Now, wait a minute, you might think. What about outreach, evangelism, the Great Commission to go and make disciples? But what if? What if internal focus fuels external transformation? Might turning inwards and practicing deep love and care for one another be the thing that is radically transformative? What if it isn't either or, but two sides of one coin? Because the thing that we most have to offer this world as we turn and look around us is an introduction to the person of Jesus and a group that's going to love the snot out of you after you join in. One final quote from Blount. Most would define evangelism, he says, as a moving out into the communities and inviting them to join whatever movement is being represented. John's gospel does not appear to have that kind of mandate in mind. What it does have in mind, however, is the maintenance of the community whose foundation is the countercultural belief that Jesus is the son sent by God to save the world from sin. The community sustains itself and perpetuates itself through the love that is shown toward one another. It is by way of this love that the community can be identified, but also by way of this love that the community stands out physically as separate and unique from every other community that's around it. It sees itself as presenting by its very own existence and its own countercultural form of life, testimony to the world. When we were together live, we then moved on to respond with a time of practicing Lectio Divina. We together listened for what God might have for us. And this practice made a lot of sense because if you think about it, at this moment, as the sermon closes, we might be pulled towards one of two reactions. First would be to smile and nod and do precisely nothing, but feel really good that we heard about all this love. The second would be that I tell you exactly what to do and prescribe it for you in a way that is completely rigid and manipulative even. And so instead, this is the space where we need to come back to God. And as a group, this is where we lean into two of our values. First, authenticity. We say we bring our regular and perfect selves to God who helps us become who we were made to be. And so we bring the selves that love this idea 
and are scared to do it. The selves that find this so compelling, but also compelling staying in our jammies and watching Netflix. We also draw on our value of openness, which is that we practice being open to what God is doing and saying in us as people and as a group and in the world. The form of that practice varies, but Lectio Divina is so helpful because it's a practice of openness where scripture and the spirit lead us forward. If you have a moment even sometime after this podcast, I invite you to look into 1 John 3 and read through that chapter in quiet letting yourself be authentic and open to God. And so may we, by the grace of God, following the way of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, present by our very existence and our own countercultural form of life, testimony to the world. Amen.